and welcome to the second in our series of evening lectures of 2010. It's my great pleasure this evening to introduce to you um, Professor David Hopwood, who is an Emeritus Fellow from the John Innes Centre in Norfolk. And he is going to be talking to you tonight, not about plants per se, but about some very important organisms that come from the soil in particular. And as we all know, as we're all uh, very keen gardeners, uh, soil is ultra important to the way we grow our plants. So we decided this was a, a legitimate way to expand people's horizons, not just focus solely on plants, but focus a little bit wider and include um, and, uh, um, organisms from the soil and actinomyces. Now I won't introduce David to you too much more, but just to say that last week Timothy introduced me as being someone that had previously turned to the dark side. Now, <laughs> being a chemist, now horticulturist, whereas I would describe David as someone who comes from the dark side because he uh, studied in Cambridge. And I'll let him know. <laughs> My first degree was in botany, and I'm very, I am a keen gardener, like I imagine most of you are. But I've spent my career working on microorganisms, and uh, one particular microorganism, which is shown here, you'll see the full beauty of it when I put the lights off. But if you put the lights off, you have to wait about 15 minutes before they go on again. And I'll put pass some specimens around first. So uh, just before we dim the lights, um, I want to. Uh, have a look at this. Open it up and smell it. I'll stop and pass it on back here. It should smell Have a look at it. And have a good sniff at it. See if it reminds you of what Alison just mentioned about. Well, soil. Later on in biology and medicine, but being a 
certainly anti-Semitic in the Russian Empire at that time. There was no chance of his pursuing a university degree there. And so he emigrated to the United States, stayed with some cousins in New Jersey, and went to the University of New Jersey, the Rutgers University, um, and uh, enrolled in a course in agriculture. And in his memoir, he was quite critical of his teachers. I think that's a healthy thing for students. Um, but in his final year, as often happened, he had a practical project. So he went around the university farm, digging up soil, taking it back to the lab, and culturing it to see what sort of microbes would grow. And as he, he said, um, to my amazement, the agar plates also showed small colonies of organisms which were similar to those of the bacteria, but under the microscope looked much like those of the fungi. So he, he was familiar with fungi, with molds, and with typical bacteria, but these things seemed to be different. We came to the conclusion that they represented an obscure group of little known organisms which usually were designated by the name Actinomyces. And thus began my interest in a group of microbes, the Actinomyces which I was later to devote much of my time and which would remain for the rest of my life my major scientific interest. Well, that's, that's with me much later as well. So what are these actinomyces? Why, why, where, where did this name come from? So uh, we go back, uh, well, so this is the sort of um, thing that he would be doing. On the left is a, a mixed culture, just take some soil, shake it up with some water, spread it on a, a jelly plate in the lab, and you see fuzzy colonies of moulds, filamentous microbes, you're very familiar with those growing on cheese and um, mouldy oranges and so on. Little tight colonies, almost liquid-like, made of single cells. These are typical bacteria. And then it's hard to discriminate them here, but here are some purified out. This is an artificial mixture of four different kinds of these organisms. So very compact, little cells like those of bacteria but fuzzy, and the, the plates that are going around, now it's a bit hard to see, you can see they're hairy, these, these organisms. So they have the dimensions of typical bacteria, but they're hairy, like um, typical moulds. These are the actinomyces. And um, this is what one looks like if, uh, if you look under the low-power electron microscope, you can see the whole colony consists of a series of interconnected thread-like cells like a typical mold, and uh, when it gets to time to uh, move to a new habitat or go into a resting phase, it produces spores. So here is the young vegetative phase. It, it uh, grows on the growing <coughs> on in the soil, compost material, plant and animal debris, produces these aerial branches which segment themselves into a series of spores, and these blow around in the environment. They're everywhere, and whenever the conditions are suitable. They, they grow into colonies. So, uh, just to remind us of, of what Waxman was talking about, the Actinomyces. So, where did this name come from? Well, this goes back to uh, 1877. Uh, a veterinarian in the University of Munich was studying a new disease called lumpy jaw of cattle. Now, I don't know if anyone has ever seen this. Probably our sort of age group we have. But cattle are not usually kept long enough now to develop such a disease but it's caused by a, a microorganism that grows in the bone of the jaw, causes these swellings. Um, and uh, this chap Hartz uh, dissected, cut sections, and saw these nodules with fine filamentous growth in the center, radiating out like this. So he called it actinomyces, which means a ray fungus. He thought it was a fungus. In fact, he made this 
which I think is a, is a very fanciful drawing. In fact, the, the organism is surrounded, it's walled off by host cells, and he mistook these, I'm quite sure, although I've never seen it written, um, for part of the organism itself. So he thought it was a typical fungus with these gonidia, as he calls them. The actual cells are not like, they're just fine filaments here. But he wasn't able to culture it outside of the, organ, of the uh, cattle because it's anaerobic, it, it won't grow in, in oxygen, it wasn't set up to do that. And so that got these organisms off to a bad start in terms of their relationships, call it a fungus. Now, uh, around about that time, other things were going on in Europe, and in particular in Norway, in Bergen. And this is um, the leper hospital in Bergen, uh, here. Uh, so, St. George's Hospital. Now, leprosy was, uh, I think we tend to think of as a tropical disease. It is now a tropical disease. It was quite common in Europe in the Middle Ages. And the last um, resort of native uh, leprosy in Europe was in Norway, which uh, I think it comes as quite a surprise if you don't already know that, because Norway is one of the coldest countries. But in the area of Western Norway around Bergen, amongst the poorer people, farmers and and fishermen, but there was a lot of leprosy. And Bergen had three hospitals for lepers. Uh, and this is just one of them. It's now a, mu a museum. And this chap, Armar Hansen, uh, was in charge of one of these hospitals and came to the revolutionary uh, conclusion that uh, leprosy was caused by a microorganism. Uh, and he could see it in cells from patients. This went against the received opinion at the time. Although in the Middle Ages people realized that uh, leprosy was contagious, that seemed to have been forgotten. And the general theory at the time was that leprosy was an inherited condition. So uh, Hansen had big trouble convincing anybody that uh, it was actually caused by a microorganism. But of course that became established, this, and this organism is still called today Hansen's bacillus. So, uh, Meanwhile, uh, a little bit later, one of the giants of um, 19th century microbiology, Robert Koch in Berlin, described the causal agent of tuberculosis. And he realized it was very similar to the organism that um, Hansen described causing leprosy. And they came to be given the same name, mycobacterium. Now, again, this was unfortunate because it means fungus bacteria. So what were these organisms? Were they bacteria? Were they fungi? Were they somewhere between the two? Very different from a typical bacillus. Um, Robert Koch made his name discovering the causal agent of anthrax. Here's bacillus anthracis, a big, robust bacillus compared with these rather flimsy, slightly branching, wavy cells of these microbacteria. And then finally, um, around about the same time, Ferdinand Cohn, who was another giant of 19th century microbiology, he was actually a botanist but he studied a lot of microbes in Wrocław in Poland, uh, described this organism, which he called Streptothrix firsterites, given to him by a medical colleague. He was not a medic, he was a botanist. And he isolated this from uh, the eye of a patient. Um, but it's pretty clear that it wasn't causing any disease. It just happened to be in the eye. It had probably been blown on in on a particle of dust. And this organism is it's probably the first, certainly the first description of an organism that we would now call Streptomyces. So we've got these different organisms, the, the, the um, 
actinomyces causing lumpy jaw, the two mycobacteria causing dangerous human diseases, this organism living in the soil. They all seem to have in common that they have very fine cells, elongated, sometimes branching, were they bacteria, were they fungi? Uh, and in fact, that, that wasn't solved, that question, until the 1950s. But let's now um, go back to Waxman, who um, graduated in agriculture at Rutgers, stayed on, and in the 20s and 30s, working in this building here on the Rutgers campus, I think this is quite a nice old picture from 1926, maybe one, one of these Model T's is Waxman's, um, he, he worked away and established a huge international reputation as a soil microbiologist. Soil microbiology was unfashionable at the time. Most microbiologists were working on human diseases, whereas he was pottering around in the soil and in compost um, and published a huge monograph on the microbiology of the soil, particularly fascinated by the fact that there are communities of microorganisms. Most bacteriologists were focusing on a particular disease-causing organism going into pure culture, focusing on it in isolation. Whereas Waxman realized that in the soil, it's a huge community of different organisms, as well as invertebrates, of course, and plant roots, were interacting together. And um, he kept an interest in these actinomyces alive, and they were really a very Cinderella group of organisms. I mean, there were people working on TB and leprosy, of course, but uh, the, the non-parasitic ones, certainly the soil organisms, were very much a, a backwater, until suddenly that all changed. And it all changed in 1939 and 1940 when penicillin was first described. I mean, penicillin, of course, had been discovered 10 years earlier by Fleming, but it was isolated and characterized and shown to be a useful antibiotic only in 1940. And so then Waxman suddenly turned over his whole lab to looking for another, other antibiotics and from these actinomyces, which he was so much interested in. He said, and I think it's probably slightly retrospective, that, um, we can skip that. Move during the many years of my digging in the soil, I had thought of the fate of disease-producing germs. Since they tend to disappear rapidly, is this because they are unable to live in the soil or because they are destroyed by the soil microbes? Could such microbes be utilized for producing chemical substances which would kill pathogenic germs in the human body. Well, as I say, slightly retrospective, because by then it was already known through the discovery of uh, penicillin that there were indeed such compounds. Penicillin, of course, comes from a fungus, penicillin mold. Waxman decided to study particularly these reactinomycetes. Um, here's a contemporary picture of Waxman on the left and Fleming. It'd be nice to write sort of bubbles coming out of there. <laughs> not quite sure what Fleming is thinking there. I think we're going to write one here. So. <laughs> um, the, these are the sorts of petri dishes that he was studying here, and I'll show you a couple in the next slide. So the test was the, all these different actinomyces that he'd been isolating over the years. He had a huge collection of them by then. There's one streaked here. And then there's pathogenic bacteria streaked in a dry panels right up to the growing actinomycetes culture. But you can see that they've been knocked back. They're not growing in this region where a chemical is diffusing from the actinomycete and is killing the bacteria. Some are much less sensitive, some are more sensitive. Here's another example. So he set his whole lab of graduate students and everybody who was available 
to looking through their collection of actinomyces to see if they could find another penicillin. Actually, not another penicillin. Penicillin was already curing blood poisoning, staphylococcus infections, and things like that. But was, penicillin was not effective against what we call gram-negative bacteria, that is, causing nephritis and some pulmonary diseases. And, and also tuberculosis was unaffected by uh, penicillin. So Waxman's particular hope was to find antibiotics that would be effective against these other <coughs> infections. And as I say, he put his whole lab onto this. And the first student to strike lucky was um, Boyd Woodruff. This is actually um, taken only, uh, what, seven years ago. This is Boyd Woodruff. I think he was 84. That's quite the 84-year-old. Very uh, interesting person to talk to. Um, and in 1940, he discovered the first uh, antibiotic from an actinomycin. They called it actinomycin, seemed logical. It killed the bacteria, but it, it, it put in the mice, it killed the mice, so that didn't seem very good. It is quite a useful anti-cancer drug now, but um, it, it wasn't going to be a, a suitable antibiotic to cure bacterial infections. The next year, Woodruff again found another compound. They call it streptothricin, after the streptothrix that COVID name. And that looked more promising. And um, they did a, a clinical trial. They got hold of six people who had fevers and gave it to them. And uh, they all stopped urinating within a few hours, but nothing that was reversible. <laughs> um, so that wasn't going on. That was a, a clinical trial in, in 1941. Uh, and then two years later, the next student, Albert Schatz, he hit the jackpot. He discovered another compound. They called it streptomycin because Waxman had renamed streptomyc as streptomycin by then. And that looked extremely good. So 1940, uh, that picture was taken in 1945. In fact, it was, the compound was discovered in 1943. 1944 and 1945, it was in guinea pigs. And um, it dramatically cured them of tuberculosis. So this, this was a test where they um, inoculated guinea pigs with the tubercle bacillus. Guinea pigs are very sensitive to human TB. And then um, noted when they died, and, and if they died, looked where the TB organism was in the different organs, the liver, the spleen, and so on. And you don't have to look at the details to see that there's a huge difference between the controls here at the top, lots of black and lots of mice that died before the end of the experiment, whereas at the bottom, there was one with just a little bit of infection here, but the rest was still alive and totally cured of TB. So that was a, a real dramatic advance. So that was 1945. 1946, it was in people, and um, they needed a lot of it. They were going to be using it in humans. And so Merck, the Merck company, which is still going as a pharmaceutical company, built a plant. I like this picture. I don't know if any of you are Damon Runyon fans, but it reminds me of you know, two parties from Brooklyn wearing a hat. Um, here is Waxman, and here's uh, uh, somebody from Merck, 1946. And in 1947, it was in people curing them of TV. And um, it made the newspapers. So here's the New York World Telegram of February 1947. Some of the other things going on are quite interesting, like Russia moving into China as Yanks get out. Palestine hanging, that's 1947, what happened in 1948? Uh, uh, the state of Israel began and so on. But what we're focusing on here is mold drug new weapon in fight on tuberculosis. 
Um, I read a number of articles from the archives by this uh, correspondent, James Stafford, who seemed to have a history wrong, but there's a, quite a, a strange statement here. It says, um, a chemical drug, uh, streptomycin, checks the progress of the white plague. That's the, the TB. It said, she says, streptomyces like penicillin comes from a mold. You see, so it's still confusion. The streptomyces mold is more like a fungus than penicillin's mold. It's <laughs> <laughs> in the soil. Well, that, that's true. She also says, in some kinds of tuberculosis, the drug um, fails to work. The organism is resistant. And this has been the history of the, of the introduction of, of antibiotics right through the antibiotics era. Almost as soon as antibiotics are used, resistance starts appearing. We'll, we'll come back to that. But anyway, that was um, an enormously important discovery because there hadn't been a decent treatment for tuberculosis before that. And, um, uh, but also, I think even more important, it showed that penicillin was not the only wonder drug available. It was a second. And so people then, academic labs and companies started to uh, look for other examples of, or of antibiotics and a lot were found, many of them still important, on phenylcortetracytin, erythromycin, tetracycline, antifungal agents like neomycin, amphotericin, vancomycin. Um, but notice the law of diminishing returns here. In retrospect, this period around the 50s and 60s has been called the golden age of antibiotic discovery. It was relatively easy then to find novel and useful compounds. Most of them, all the ones in black here, coming from actinomyces. The fungi, I don't want to denigrate fungi, they're extremely important for a small number of compounds. Penicillin is still enormously important in its later chemical derivatives, and also cephalosporin of the same chemical class, again, extremely important. So out of all the antibiotics that are used, penicillin and cephalosporin derivatives are probably about half the total, and then the others come from these actinomycin products. Um, the fungi also produce compounds which are small molecules like antibiotics but have other uses like cytosporin which was the first immunosuppressant that allowed tissue transplants to uh, succeed and the statins which many of us take for reducing cholesterol levels in the blood. Um, but notice that after about 1960 or certainly the 60s the rate of discovery fell off and um, companies began to believe that it was all over. It, it wasn't going to be possible to find new compounds. The last antibacterial to be introduced was way back here, thionomycin. There has been one a bit later, which was too late to put on the spot. These compounds here are very useful, but they're not antibiotics. They're um, immunosuppressants or uh, antiparasitic agents. They kill worms and, and insect parasites and so on. So it seemed that well, the drug companies um, assumed that, that it was all over that they were going to have to look elsewhere to try to find novel antibiotics. And you might say, why, need, why do we need new antibiotics with all these? Well, the problem is, of course, this main problem that we mostly hear about is resistance. Whenever an antibiotic is used against a bacterium, mutants arise, they're, they're resistant, they take over the, the population because they can resist the antibiotic. And the, the well-known examples that we hear a lot about are the methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. We hear less about this enterococcus, but that's important in abdominal surgery, C. difficile, 
highly resistant TB that's become resistant to nearly everything throughout it, as well as other uses. Mycobacteria have always been difficult to uh, kill because they grow so slowly and they hide in the body and they're hard to attack with antibiotics. One, one could, would hope for much more effective agents, less toxic antiviral anti-cancer agents. Anti-cancer agents, many of them are natural products. They tend, they're always toxic, they always have side effects. It would be very nice to find agents which are still effective as anti-tumor agents but less toxic or other uses like this. So we do need uh, normal compounds, where are they going to come from? Uh, one, route, one route is to harness genetics. So now I want to talk a little bit about genetics as a way of addressing this problem of finding new antibiotics, part, well, for the reasons that we can see here. Skip that. Um, so this is Streptomyces sedicolor again. So this is the organism that's growing on the petri dishes that I passed around and that you saw uh, on the opening slide which makes this beautiful blue compound here. So this is what we call the wild-type organism. This is the organism that was originally isolated from soil, and it makes the blue antibiotic. Now, uh, it's, it's possible and, and quite easy if you spread thousands of colonies on the petri dishes. Once in a while, you see mutants that fail to produce the blue compound. Here's one that's entirely devoid of pigment. Here's one that's making a reddish compound, or a brownish, or a yellowish compound. Um, they are not able to make this antibiotic compound. Why are they different from each other? And this is an important feature about antibiotics. Antibiotics are small molecules, that is, they're not proteins. Proteins are giant molecules, and typically to make one protein, you need one gene. You have a stretch of DNA, and it makes an RNA copy, and then it makes a protein. So one gene one protein. So insulin, for example, in our bodies, other hormones, they're simple to make because they only need one gene. These small molecules, they're made by stepwise pathways where you start with something very simple, an enzyme, which itself is a protein made by a gene, converts that to the next compound in the pathway, a bit more complicated. Then you need another enzyme, and therefore another gene, to take it further and further. And you might need 20 or more genes just to make a relatively simple antibiotic. So I like to make this sort of paradoxical statement that small molecules are simple, uh, uh, large molecules are, are simple genetically, small molecules are complex genetically because they're made by pathways. And that's what's happening here. So this has a mutation in a step, in a gene controlling a very early step, and so you don't make anything resembling the final product. These ones are blocked a bit further along the pathway, and so they've got partway towards the final structure. It's beginning to show some of the pigmented properties of the final molecule, although it hasn't reached the end. Um, so uh, that, that was how uh, actinomycetes antibiotic genetics began, using this very convenient pigmented antibiotic as a model system. This is not an important antibiotic manager, but it's very useful in the lab because just by visual inspection, you could, we could pick these mutants. Um, and um, we could go back the other way to clone the gene, to get hold of the DNA responsible for making that antibiotic. The experiment, if you like, runs in reverse. You take this, uh, a mutant that's blocked in making the antibiotic, take some DNA from the, the wild-type strain that can make the antibiotic, break that DNA into short pieces at random, introduce them, 
you don't need to go into the details, introduce those pieces of DNA into the mutant, and lo and behold, one of them here has gone blue again. So that means that this particular one has inherited uh, that very piece of DNA that codes for the gene that is defective in this mutant. So you can isolate now the DNA, and you can sequence it and study it and manipulate it now in ways that were unimaginable well, back in 1984 when the first clone was isolated. Um, and what do we find out? Well, we find out, uh, without going into detail, that, it, that it's complex. So just to make this molecule, this is the structure of that blue uh, molecule called actinorodin that you can see on the petri dishes. It's actually a symmetrical molecule made of two halves like this. So the trick, the organism has to make this and then join two of them together. And it needs 22 genes in order to make this. It makes it from acetic acid, essentially. So it has to put acetic acid, which is a, a unit of two carbon atoms, putting them together stepwise, so two carbons here and two more and two more and two more, and then it gradually builds this up. And then it has to make these rings. It has to make this ring with the oxygen in it. It has to introduce these oxygen atoms here. And it has to join these two together. And there are some places where it has to get the right stereochemistry, as we call it, the right um, mirror image version of the molecule. So, as you can see, it's, it's, it's complex. It's a small molecule that has to be built up stepwise. And even to make that, which is relatively simple for an antibiotic, um, it, it takes 22 genes. So, 20, about 22,000 GCs, A's, and T's along the chromosome of the organism. Um, now, having isolated the DNA that makes that compound, it was possible to ask the question, could one make novel compounds by introducing some or all of those genes into another strain that makes a different antibiotic? Could we mix and match and make hybrid pathways? Well, I wouldn't be asking the question if we didn't know that it was possible. Um, and here's the first example of a hybrid antibiotic. So here is... This is the same molecule we've just seen, but it's sort of just drawn as two of these joined together. Uh, and this is the uh, streptomyces coloured making actinorodin. This is a strain that um, makes another compound, a brown compound called metamycin. Now, look at these, they're obviously not identical, but once you get your eye in, you can see that this part of the molecule is very similar to this here. But there are some differences, whereas there are two of these joined Back to back here, this one has a sugar attached here. So it's a single uh, one of these compared with two joined together that has a sugar. And where this has an OH, a hydroxyl group in this position, this one lacks it. So what we did, we didn't have the complete structure of the pathway then, so it was done a bit more at random, taking pieces of that cluster of genes from the actinorodin producer, put them into the metamycin producer, and came into the lab one two or three days later, and there was a beautiful purple culture. And uh, chemistry was done, and uh, lo and behold, it's a chemical hybrid. It's, it's in fact this molecule, but with the hydroxyl, which you find in this molecule, in the corresponding position. So you might say, well, that's not a big change. No, it's not. It's not something which would be easy for a chemist to do, but it's only a small change because it's actually probably the last step in the pathway. It's what we call a, a late tailoring step, a decorating step. It's not altering the basic 
architecture of the molecule. It's coming along with a minor change. But nevertheless, uh, we were quite pleased with that. We called it metarodin because it was a hybrid in metamycin and actinorodin. There, there aren't really any rules in, in um, naming antibiotics. You can call them anything you like as long as it's not green. So we don't teach you what you can call it. Um, get away with it if it's in a foreign language. So um, we call it metarodin. And that has led uh, to a field of, of study. It was called combinatorial biosynthesis, mix and matching, or doing chemistry by genetics. And there have been some successes, not unfortunately with strict antibiotics, antibacterial compounds, but more in the anti-cancer field. And there's a reason for that, which perhaps we might discuss at the end. It's, it's not basically a scientific reason, but it's to do with economics and um, the regulation of, uh, of, of drugs, the fact that it's far easier to launch a new anti-cancer on the market, anti-cancer agent, than a new antibiotic. We, we've come back to that. But nevertheless, this is a, 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 rel a valid field of study, and um, I think we can hope for some more successes in the future. Uh, meanwhile, I want to now move forward to the genomics age. This is the age, if you like, of genetics. We're dealing here with small numbers of genes, making fairly controlled sort of changes, moving a gene from here to there, or a pair of genes, or a cluster of genes from one organism to another, building up from um, sort of later parts, if you like. Um, but um, another whole field has been opened up with the era of, of whole genome sequencing of microbes, um, and um, in particular, the sequencing of the genome of, of my favorite organism. Here we are, Streptomyces celiacum. I get another picture of it making the actinorodin. Here it is on the cover of Nature back in May 2002, when our um, grant authority, the, the biological, uh, Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council, in its wisdom, uh, voted enough money to sequence this genome over a four year period. It was done at the Sanger Institute in Cambridge, which is the place where the human genome is. In fact, this got held up a bit, because when the race to sequence the human genome uh, potted up, uh, all the machines were turned over to that, and so this project was delayed slightly. But never that, it came out, and one of the, um, well, and uh, it turns out, well, a whole lot of interesting things were shown in the genome. Um, here is a picture of the genome, I don't expect you to uh, examine every detail of it, um, but uh, just, it's, it's, it's actually, for those of you who know a bit about bacterial genetics, it's unusual because it has a linear chromosome. Nearly all bacteria have circular chromosomes. So that's quite interesting, but we won't talk about that now. It's large, so it has 8,667,507 base pairs of DNA, so code letters, G, C's, A's, and T's. Um, more than 8.5 million of them, which, which allows it to encode 7,825 genes which is large for a bacteria. It's about twice the size of typical bacteria that live in, let's say, more specialized habitats. Now, the thing about streptomyces is they live in the soil. And we'll come on shortly to how complex the soil is and how it, the organism is interacting with all kinds of other organisms in the soil. And the, the physical environment changes. The temperature changes, the amount of radiation, the ultraviolet light, of, of acidity and alkalinity and so on. And so the organism is a very flexible one. It has uh, more genes 
then uh, it needs to go under simple conditions because you know, the next day it might be growing under different conditions. It might have to use a different source of food and so on. So it's a very um, flexible and versatile organism. Um, so, I mean, we already <coughs> knew that the genome was going to be large just from cruder studies that have been done, but we didn't realize it was going to have quite as many things as this. But, um, and then um, the following year, um, another organism was sequenced, uh, Streptomyces avermitilis. This was done in Japan, so I put a bamboo here to honor um, <laughs> that. Um, Streptomyces avermitilis makes a very interesting compound called avermectin, which is a major drug in animal husband husbandry, and it has a human use as well, curing parasitic worm infections. There's a form of blindness in sub-Saharan Af Africa, which is caused by a microscopic worm in the eye, that, and this antibiotic completely takes care of that. Um, so it's an important organism. So that was sequenced, and then um, Greg here, Greg Chalice, um, was mainly responsible for looking at these genomes from the point of view of what might they encode in terms of antibiotics. And a very important discovery came out of that. And that was that, that both these examples, Streptomyces coelicale and Streptomyces avermitilis, they had very large numbers of clusters of genes that could encode interesting molecules. Uh, you saw that cluster of genes for making actin rhodium, the 22 genes. So um, by looking at the genomes of these organisms as they were sequenced, well, as they were sequenced in the case of Celical, and when they sequenced this one was published, Greg noticed all kinds of potential clusters which could encode molecules. We didn't worry about what classes of compounds they are. The important thing to notice is that there were 23 recognized in Celical, there were 30 recognized in Edomitis, which could encode interesting molecules. They might be antibiotics, they might have cancer properties, one, one didn't know, but they fell into chemical classes which had representatives which we knew would be interesting. Um, and the most striking thing is that they were nearly all different in the two organisms. So everything in black, even though the structure wasn't completely determined, it was clearly different in the two organisms. In red, okay, one of these may be the same, this is probably identical, and this here. But those are a minority, most of them are in black. So here are two genomes of sequence. They each have a couple of dozen or more potentially interesting clusters of genes to make antibiotic-like molecules, and they're nearly all different. Well, I mean, there are thousands of actinomyces out there in the soil, possibly millions. Think of the number of compounds that might be there which have not been tested for any interesting and useful properties. Most of them are probably sleeping, cryptic. So if you bring them into the lab and screen, grow, grow the organism rapidly on a rich medium and screen under typical conditions, you don't find these compounds. They're, they're sleeping until some stimulus, we don't know what it is, it might be contact with another organism or a different uh, carbon source or a different nitrogen source or a different pH would switch them on and then under those conditions they could give the organism adaptive advantage. So this is a, a big new field of study and there are labs in a number of countries um, ser getting seriously interested in trying to find ways to wake up these genes and investigate them to see if they could be useful. And there's a hope, I think, that they could be rather different from the antibiotics that have been discovered up to now because 
Using the old methods, it's very hard to find new compounds. It's very easy to find antibiotics, but they turn out to be rediscoveries of things that have been found before. But here are uh, clusters of genes with different biological activities in nature, whatever they turn out to be. And almost certainly, there are going to be some interesting activities that have not been found before. And I mean, I'm in no doubt that there will be some very interesting and useful compounds found if enough uh, effort and um, resources got put into this kind of field. But I mean, it's not hugely expensive. I'm compared with a you know, nuclear missile, I mean, it's um, <laughs> a small change. Um, OK, so that's, um, that's a little bit about the genetics of, of, of antibiotics. Now I want to go back to the soil and uh, talk a little bit about the interactions between actinomycetes and other organisms. And also to um, come back to the smell of, uh, of the plates that I passed around, which I hope you will think uh, have an earthy sort of odor. Uh, somebody said moldy, but okay. Um, well, that earthy odor is due to a compound called geosmin, which uh, has a very simple structure there. And Greg has supplied me with um, <coughs> a sample of geosmin here which is uh, in this box, wrapped up in a bag, and um, inside is a tube with a minute amount of it. And I think you'll agree that even with, with it smells earthy. I think we said we agree. Just imagine if we took the top of the tube. Um, uh, so that is the major um, volatile compound that the streptomyces makes, and it's largely responsible for the earthy smell of freshly dug earth. Or if you go through the woods after rain, um, you get this beautiful earthy odor, geosmin. Now, um, it's almost certainly not made for our benefit, although it's interesting that uh, humans are extremely sensitive to geosmin. In fact, most of us typically can detect five past a trillion of. Um, Geosmin in the air, and it's interesting to speculate uh, about why that should be. Maybe our ancestors living in caves, you know, it was important to find the right humidity. They knew that this cave was going to be healthy and so on, and there'd be some actinomycetes growing in there, and, you know, not too wet, not too dry, perfect. Smells nice and earthy. Um, and, um, but, but uh, that, as I said, it probably wasn't um, evolved by the streptomyces for our benefit, but it may have been evolved because certain invertebrates are also extremely uh, attracted by geosmin, and especially these springtails or kalemba, where here they are on a, on a little branch here, I think it's a little twig. Here's one at higher magnification, springtails or kalemba. You find them around in gardens, I'm sure you seen them, and um, they, they really uh, like geosmin, they're attracted to streptomyces colonies, and this could of course be adaptive, they would feed on the colonies, uh, the spores are very resistant to digestion, and would pass through their bodies and be dispersed, uh, and the same would be true of, um, I think I've lost the order of this. Oh yes, let's jump to something which seems irrelevant. Here's a picture of a cow um, with uh, a beautiful furry snout here. Um, well, now camels apparently are even more sensitive to geosmin than humans. They can detect it in incredibly small quantities. Now, when you imagine 
uh, a camel in the desert uh, gets a sight with the geosmin, where would it be coming from? It would come from an oasis where there's moist soil and where streptomyces will be growing. And so it will follow this gradient of geosmin to the oasis and find water. And as it noses around and drinks the water, because its muzzle will pick up soil particles in the damp soil, so the streptomyces spores would be um, would dry up to its uh, muzzle hair, and then when it goes to another oasis and states its thirst, because some of those spores will be left there. So you can imagine that streptomyces has evolved the ability to make geosmin so that it can be dispersed by camels. Well, now that may be a bit fanciful, <laughs> uh, but I, I think it's not so fanciful to uh, propose that potworms, well now, uh, earthworms are uh, major dispersers of um, microorganisms in the soil, and uh, some interesting experiments have been done with potworms. Potworms are closely related to earthworms, but they're easy to culture in the lab. So these experiments these were done in the Czech Republic, the place where Budweiser beer comes from. Um, and uh, what they did was to, to give them a, present the, the potworms with see two examples of streptomyces growing on an agar cake. And very often they would hone in on one of them and perhaps be repelled by another. And in fact, I'm going to pass around some other plates here, um, which clearly smell different. Some of them don't smell terribly nice. But, um, <laughs> you can yourself. There are three different plates there. You can pass them around. Just have a quick sniff and pass them on. Um, So I think there's not much doubt that um, some of these volatile compounds have evolved as agents to help their spores to be dispersed. If you think about earthworms feeding on a streptomyces colony, the, the spores are very resistant. They will pass through the body of the earthworm with very, very fine soil particles. You know, you get these um, worm casts on the surface. Um, so it's streptomyces spores mixed with very tiny particles, just like weaponizing anthrax. You remember when there was that anthrax scare in the US, when people talked about weaponizing the anthrax. And biological warfare um, organizations have considered how this might be done. You don't want the spores on there, you want them in with a dispersal agent. And that's exactly what a worm cast would consist of. And so if a worm is attracted to a streptomyces and eats it, the mycelium, the spores pass through. Um, so I think that's going on in our gardens all the time. A couple of other things about streptomyces and plants. Um, this is a, most streptomyces are clearly very, very good organisms. They make very useful compounds, um, antibiotics and so on. But uh, one is not so good, and that is the potato scab organism. Now, those of you who grow potatoes, well, anybody who buys and eats potatoes will have, cross, will have come across potato scab, which causes these um, blemishes on the surface of the potato. It doesn't destroy it completely, but it certainly spoils their appearance. Uh, they're very characteristic, where the skin tears back in these rather angular ways. And in fact, we now know, actually, through uh, genomic work on the potato scab organism, it's called streptomyces scabies, that uh, this is largely due to a, an antibiotic eye compound called thaxtomin, which inhibits the synthesis of cellulose. You know, plant cell walls are made largely of cellulose. 
And um, if you interfere with that, you can get lesions. And that's one of the main things that's going on in the case of the paper scan. Well, now, it's interesting about the paper scan because in most cases of plant disease, if you keep growing the same crop on the same piece of soil year after year, diseases will build up. I mean, it's natural. But in the case of potatoes, I don't know if anyone here is an expert, but what I understand is that if you grow potatoes on the same piece of soil year after year, the scab gets less, and you get what are called suppressive soils. And it seems that in those cases, other streptomyces in the soil build up and inhibit the pathogen that causes potato scab. So there's, there's warfare going on there, there's competition going on between different in this case, streptomyces. But you may get other cases of competition, and there's one that's been commercialized. So I don't know if anyone's ever heard of, of a material called microscop. It's a biological fungicide. I don't believe it's on the market in this country, because what it consists of is spores and mycelium of a streptomyces, streptomyces gluteoviridis. Minimum content is 100 millions of colony forming units per gram of this material. And it's made by a, a Finnish chemical company. Actually, it's um, a company, it's sort of the ICI of Finland, you know, billion dollars turnover. And this probably is responsible for, you know, about that much of that profit. But so whether they make any money out of this, I don't know. But anyway, it's um, sold and presumably has uh, some useful effect or. Otherwise, people wouldn't buy it. Particularly in damping off, you know, um, pythium and so on in uh, seedlings. They they say vegetable crops, tomato, eggplant, sweet pepper, melon, cucumber, etc., etc. Ornamental crops. Um, so this material microscope stop is, and what it's doing is inhibiting, in this case, fungi, probably, and they're showing it here through the production of antifungal antibiotics. But there could also be an element of enzymic attack because um, many fungal cell walls are made of a material called chitin which also forms the exoskeletons of insects and many uh, streptomyces produce chitinases which allow them to grow on fungal cell walls and the dead bodies of insects and this could well be part of the inhibitory effect of the, um, the streptomyces on the, on the fungus, on the pathogenic fungus. Finally, let's finish with a, a, I think it's a beautiful story. I mean, how much of it is totally true remains to be seen, but it's, it's worth telling. And that is to do with um, leaf-cutting ants. Now, these are ants that live in the tropics, and they cut up leaves. So here's an example. Here's uh, the midrib of a lying on a piece of concrete, I guess. And here's some ants, and they've completely cut it up into little pieces and here they are marching away with uh, bits of leaf bigger than themselves heading over towards their colony. The colony can be huge, I and mean, it can be bigger than this room with millions and millions of ants in it. And what they do is to take these pieces of leaves down into the, um, the cavities of their colonies where a, a, a fungus, a useful fungus, grows on it. They have what they call these, what have been called these fungal gardens. So they masticate the leaves and the fungus grows on it and their sole food source is this fungus. It's like if we only eat mushrooms all, yeah, all the time. And that's, that's great. But the problem is 
that the nests become contaminated with a pathogenic fungus which destroys the food fungus. And that can be a disaster for a colony. They, they, they go about it by actually weeding out the pathogenic fungus so far as they can. But um, a major um, part of their survival is an actinomycete specific, well, in, in the complete version of the story, completely um, specific for that particular strain of ants. And it's even been proposed that it sticks to particular regions on the, on the bodies of the female ants, that is, the queen and the workers, gets transferred on always to the next generation. So they're never without this beneficial actinomycete, which helps to keep their fungal farms clear of, of weeds, if you like, this um, parasitic fungus. So it's a fantastic story. People are working on this, partly now from the point of view of finding what are some of the inhibitory agents, some of them are clearly antifungal antibiotics, are there other compounds that could be um, discovered? And a colleague at the University of East Anglia, one of my colleagues is working on this, and oh, behold, they've already isolated a whole bunch of different actinomycetes, streptomycetes, and other genera of, of actinomycetes from some of these um, ant colonies. And uh, again, this is a niche that's not being exploited from a medical point of view. There's surely are going to be some interesting compounds here. I mean, there's no doubt there are going to be some interesting compounds. That question is, are some of them going to be useful, possibly as useful antifungal agents in human medicine, possibly with other activities? Almost a final slide shows an example of that. So here is, um, this is the nasty fungus. And this is, this is a strain, a lab strain, very, very similar to the Streptomyces helicolor that I passed around. And you can see it's being engulfed by the parasitic fungus. It's not inhibiting. But here's one of these isolates from the ant nest. And you can see it knocking it back. It's secreting something which is completely holding back the growth of the um, parasitic fungus. So um, I'll, I'll stop there. Um, I hope I've left you with the impression that these actinomycetes are no longer a Cinderella group. They are an interesting group of microbes. <laughs> By the way, perhaps I never finished the story. They are true bacteria. They're not intermediate between bacteria and fungi. They, they look superficially like molds, but that's a, a parallel development. They're true bacteria. Um, and um, they have interesting properties. They make lots of antibiotics. Uh, they're very useful in medicine. And they do have, uh, people are getting more and more interested in these ecological aspects. What are they doing in the, on the roots of plants or in these ant nests or in, in mixed populations in the soil? And as time goes on, the number of genera has increased. I, I skipped over a slide. Waxman, after all these studies in the 20s and 30s, has, uh, decided that indeed there are just about five genera of actinomyces. They can all be accommodated as either streptomyces, actinomyces, nocardia, streptomyces, or micronospora. But now there are over 230 genera, and here are just some of them at high magnification. I mean, that's a gamut of beautiful structures here living in the soil mostly. Some live in marine habitats, even in deep oceans, but typically soil. I mean, any, garden, any soil in your garden, in the botanic garden, will be teeming with these things um, if you find the right conditions to isolate them. It's not a commercial, but if anyone is interested, <laughs> 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 
about this subject. Um, there is this book. It is published by Oxford University Press, by the way. The American end. But that's not well on that. I just wanted to end with a, a, a picture that I was sent only just a few days ago, where people are using uh, bacterial pigments in art and making draw. And this, believe it or not, is a picture drawn on a petri dish with that streptomyces sedicolor, <laughs> which uh, I've passed around. And all of this uh, is drawn with a very fine paintbrush using the streptomyces spores, and then it's incubated, and you can see where it's growing densely, the blue actin erodin is coming out. I mean, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks so much.